Are you enjoying this free audiobook from Scribble.com? You may not know that Scribble has much more than just free audiobooks. Audiobooks, ebooks, we're adding new titles all the time. You can skip these ads and get higher quality audio files by purchasing audiobooks on Scribble. Even better, every audiobook you buy from Scribble comes with the ebook at no additional charge. Visit us at scribble.com. That's S C R I B L dot com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the serial audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of Book One in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com slash alive. Part 5. Up and Down. 36. We run downhill. We run past the severed arms, the mangled bodies, the piles of skulls. The more I know, the more all of this makes sense. Brewer is one of the monsters, one of the grown-ups, one of the cherished. Maybe those are all the same things. His copy, his receptacle, died, murdered by the woman that is me, leaving him stranded in an ancient twisted body, a journey of over a thousand years. And at the end, he will simply wither and die. He has no hope. I might go crazy too. We reach the intersection where our two tribes met. We turn left. We are again tiny insects crawling in the long straight hallway that runs along the inside of a giant cylinder. We are heading back to our people. What happened on this ship? Some people do not approve of being sacrificed, Brewer had said. There was a revolt, a war. Many died. Did everyone on this ship have a copy? Was everyone promised a new life on Omeocan? The answers don't really matter. Choices have consequences. The grown-ups made choices that destroyed their lives. Our choices are yet to be made. Our lives are yet to be lived. If we can get away from here. We run and run and run. Matilda's monsters will start hunting us soon, if they aren't already. We have to get to the others before her kind gets to them first. Brewer didn't tell us where the shuttle was. He didn't have time. Matilda pushed him out somehow, or maybe broke his pillar. I don't know. He was toying with us, though, and in his toying was a hint. I know how to find the shuttle, and hopefully, we will also find Bello. Before, I wasn't sure if I should be the leader. I'm sure now. Among all of us, I am unique. I think. I don't simply react. I make decisions when doing so is hard. I know what it means to kill. I will make sure we do what must be done, even if I have to force those who disagree with me into cooperating. I'm going to get my people out of here and get them out alive. If they want to vote for someone else when we're all safe, that's fine with me. The grown-ups divided their tribe and fought each other. I will keep our tribe unified, and we will fight as one. I make so much noise when I run. Gaston does too and also Aramovsky, the three of us huffing and puffing, our feet slapping on the floor. 
I wouldn't have noticed, except for the silence of the circle stars. I can barely hear Bishop, even though he is twice my size and is right next to me. Before long, I see the dark spot on the floor where Yong's life leaked out into the dust. But something is different. The hallway on the left, the dark one where O'Malley and Aramovsky took Yong's body. It is brighter. And we were careful to move around the bloody slush. Now it is trampled about as if a dozen people ran through it. I hear voices coming from the intersection. No one should be here. Everyone should be in our coffin room, protected by Coyotal and Farrar. Bishop, someone is up there. He nods. He heard it long before I did. Get ready to fight, he says. Are Matilda's monsters already here? Elsafani slows, waiting for us to catch up. Voices filter from out of the one stark hall but they aren't the hissing obscenities of the grown-ups. These voices sound normal, like ours, but strange, higher-pitched, excited, loud. We move closer to the intersection, just a few steps away now. My clumsiness and the noisy feet of Gaston and Aramovsky must alert them. A person turns the corner and stares at us, wide-eyed. A young girl with dark brown skin. She's wearing a clean white shirt, a red tie, a red and black plaid skirt. The clothes fit her perfectly. I slow to a stop. So do Bishop, Elsafani, and the others. The girl's mouth hangs open. A skinny boy turns the corner and joins her. Then another, and another little girl. Uniformed children quickly fill the intersection, gawking at the gray-skinned adults carrying bones as weapons. Gaston moves to my side. M, he says. Who are they? I have no idea. But I think on Brewer's words, and I remember what he said. Don't forget to take your little friends. Little friends, this is what he meant. Another body turns the corner. One we see clearly because he is head and shoulders above the others. It's O'Malley. A smile breaks across his face, wider than I have ever seen. He is alive. He is beautiful. He awkwardly slides past the children, careful not to bump them. They grab at him for comfort, slide in behind him to hide, their eyes never straying from the frightening images of Bishop and Elsafani. O'Malley walks to me. Bishop steps aside. O'Malley opens his arms and pulls me in. Em, we didn't know if you'd make it back. He squeezes me tight, so tight, lifts me off my feet, and for a perfect moment, everything goes away. He smells of sweat. He smells familiar. His body is warm and firm. I will protect this body, protect him. I will not let Matilda take O'Malley. I glance at Bishop, wondering how he might react to the hug. But he is making a point of looking the other way. I hear more people approaching. O'Malley sets me down as Spingate, Beckett, and Smith come rushing around the corner. They slide past the kids. I expect Spingate to hug Bishop first, but instead she runs to Gaston and almost knocks him over with her flying embrace. She squeezes him far harder than O'Malley squeezed me. I didn't know, she says. Her voice cracks. Her words sound wet. You were gone, and I didn't know if you... Gaston hugs her back, pets her thick red hair. We're fine, he says. 
Everyone made it. Beckett stands there, smiling and awkward, unsure if he should hug someone, shake hands or just stay quiet. The lanky Smith greets Aramovsky first. She laces her fingers together, presses her palms against her sternum, and she bows her head. The gesture is disturbingly formal, almost subservient. If there was another vote, she would choose Aramovsky. Those others that seemed to hang on his every word, they would as well. With Spingate, Gaston, O'Malley, and Bishop behind me, though, it doesn't really matter. Whatever Aramovsky's plans might be, they will have to wait until I have us all down on Omeocan. Spingate lets go of Gaston and launches herself at me, crushes me in a tight hug. Em, I'm so happy to see you. Did you find anything? I hug her back, almost as hard. She smells nice. She smells like home. We did. I gently push her away. What are you all doing here? You were supposed to stay in the coffin room. Spingate throws up her hands, gestures to the children. There must be 20 of them in the hall now, maybe more. They just started showing up, she says. Those closed archway doors by our coffin room, they opened all up and down the hall. Kids walked out. We gathered up as many as we could and put them in our room. But we could see more in both directions. We came this way. O'Malley had Coyote, Farrar, Opkick, and Borgigan go the other. She points down the hall where we left Yong. When we got here, it was all lit up, like someone had turned on the lights. We went down the hall until it ended at another melted door. So we think we found all the kids we can. We were about to head back to our coffin room when we heard you coming. The first girl we saw walks up to me. Her legs are skinny. She has the bony knees I thought I had when I woke up. She reaches out and takes my free hand in hers. She stares up. There's a jagged circle on her forehead. The black symbol complements her dark brown skin and eyes. There are a few dust smudges on her shirt, but no blood, no grease, no sweat stains, and no dirt. She hasn't fought. She hasn't feared. She hasn't killed. She is clean, unblemished in any way. She is what we were all supposed to be. I squat slightly so I can look her in the eye. What's your name? I ask. She smiles. Zubiri, I think. That's what it said on my bed. To her, it wasn't a coffin. It wasn't a cradle. It was just a bed. That's a nice name, I say. My friends and I woke up before her, and we're larger, physically older. But after what Matilda told me, I think I know how this works. Zubiri, how old are you? I'm 12, she says, perking up instantly. Today is my birthday. I can't help but smile. Happy birthday. I look at the other clean faces staring my way. Happy birthday to you all. Once again, everything has changed. My friends and I thought we were 12 years old. We're not, not after what we've been through. But these kids are, at least as far as they know. 12-year-old minds and 12-year-old bodies. Brewer entrusted these kids to us. He felt we could get them to the planet below. I still don't know his story. I don't know why he fought Matilda. I don't know who was in the right and who was in the wrong. I will probably never know. But Brewer seems to understand me.
I think he knew I wouldn't be able to leave these children behind. They were made to walk on Omeocan. They are coming with us. If anyone gets in our way, they will learn that the birthday children, together as one people, are extremely dangerous. The kids are already wandering around the hall. My stomach churns when I see that two of the boys are giggling while they throw chunks of dried blood slush at each other. I turn to Bishop. His dust-caked face seems calm, as if he's waiting for orders. Bishop, can you get these kids organized? We have to move fast. He glances at O'Malley with cold eyes. Is he jealous of that hug? The way I was jealous when I thought he was looking at Spingate? Part of me hopes he's not, and another part hopes he is. Both parts, though, can wait. We all have important work ahead of us. Bishop nods. I can, he says. Do you want me to do it my way? I wouldn't have asked you if I didn't. The gray caked mouth twitches with the slightest of smiles. He draws himself up to his full height and starts yelling. New kids, form two lines, right arm straight, right hand on the right shoulder of the person in front of you. Don't make me ask twice. The wide-eyed children practically fall all over themselves, scrambling to comply. In seconds, the wandering mob has formed two neat lines. Without a word, Bodden and Visca take up positions behind them. The twins take their usual place out front. Bishop smiles at me. What now, Em? Back to the coffin room, I say, as fast as we can go. His chest swells as he draws in a huge breath. You will all follow El Safani. Match the pace of the person in front of you. And if you fall behind, you'll have to answer to me. Understand? Twenty-odd heads nod rapidly. I wouldn't want to answer to Bishop either. Good, Bishop says. El Safani, move out. The kids and the circle stars take off, moving as a single unit. I'll say one thing for Bishop. He's great at getting people to march. Gaston and Aramovsky run along behind them, as do Smith and Beckett. That leaves me standing alone with O'Malley. The kids are a problem, he says quietly. We had maybe 50 in the coffin room. If Coyotal found as many in his direction as we found here, there might be a hundred of them on our hands, maybe more. If the monsters come, how are we going to defend that many people? A memory bubbles up through the mud, a memory of a man's face pieces of it anyway, vague images, a black mustache, soft, loving eyes, eyes that could also be hard, separated by deep furrows and a flaring nose. That voice in my head, it belongs to him. He is my father, and yet he is not. Those vague memories are a lie. That was Matilda's father, not mine. I don't have parents, because I wasn't born. I was created. I was hatched. The man is not my father, yet his words bounce around inside my brain. His words are the only real connection to my past, and his words feel right. We're not going to defend anything, I say. We attack, O'Malley. When in doubt, attack. Always attack. Never let your enemy recover. O'Malley gives me a curious look. What does that mean? It means we're going to the garden. Every last one of us. We're going to find Bellow. We're going to find the way off this ship. And if the monsters get in our way, we are going to kill them and be forever free. I meet his deep blue eyes, 
He's observing me, measuring me. Em? Sometimes you're kind of scary. I nod. Thank you. And what do you mean, off this ship? We're in a building. Come on, let's move. I'll tell you everything when we're all together. I have a plan. We run downhill. 37. I stand on Oka Digbo's coffin. The room is so full of people I can't see the floor. They sit cross-legged in the aisle of dust. They sit on coffins. They stand with their backs to the walls. Faces stare up at me, both familiar and new. I tell them what I know. I describe what must be done. O'Malley counted. The numbers are hard to accept. I was a leader of 22 people. Now I lead 130. How will we take care of these kids? I don't know. Neither does O'Malley. We have to figure it out. We will not leave a single person behind to have their newly hatched minds wiped out by the evil that runs this ship. I understood Brewer's riddle. If they found you, you found them. There is much more to this building than we first knew. Beyond the doors that Brewer melted shut to keep our older selves away, beyond the garden's walls, there lie seemingly endless sections of this ship. If they found you, you found them. Brewer thought he'd sealed us in, but Matilda had centuries to find a hole through his barriers. She got Bellow in the garden. We will find the path the monsters used to attack us there, and we will use that same path to attack them. We will capture a grown-up. We will make that monster tell us what we need to know. The location of Bellow, the location of the shuttle, and how to use it. The faces look up at me. I tell them about Matilda, Brewer, and the husks, and the receptacles. I tell them about the Zolotl, and the crystal ball. I tell them about Omeyakan, and the shuttle that will take us there if we can find it. I tell them we are being hunted. I tell them what the grown-ups will do to us if they catch us. And then, I tell them my plan. As I expected, Aramovsky doesn't like it. That's ridiculous, he says. You're going to get us all killed, and even if we survive, the gods will be furious at our insolence. He's using bigger words now. All the older kids are, including me. It happened gradually, I think. But now I'm noticing it, especially when Aramovsky talks. He doesn't like my plan. Something tells me he wouldn't have liked any plan I put forth. He wants to contradict me no matter what I say, so that the people who think he is chosen will pay more attention to him. He objects, but as I figured, his objection doesn't really matter right now, because my friends believe in me. It will work, Bishop says. We can beat them, I know we can. The circle stars grunt, they bump their chests. Bishop has their backing and I have his. As long as that holds, there's nothing Aramovsky can do. The five circle stars in this room are itching for a fight, and that's what I aim to give them. Only Elsafani isn't here. The twins are in the hall, preparing. Bishop, Coyoto, Visca, Farrar, and boy Elsafani used O'Malley's knife to cut the legs off their tattered pants, which are now roughly the same length as the short skirts of Baudin and girl Elsafani. I think the circle stars also cut themselves to make fresh dust paste. 
They are coated head to toe in a dark red-gray that is almost the same color as the scarred monster's blood. Shirtless, bare-legged, with paste caked on their exposed skin, on their faces, even mashed in their hair. The circle stars all look the same. We can barely tell the boys and girls apart. O'Malley has his knife back. He fiddles with it, absently moving it from hand to hand. He has that look on his face again, like he wants to tell me something but doesn't want to say it in front of the others. Out with it, O'Malley. What are you thinking? He glances around the room, sees that everyone is waiting for him to talk. The bracelets, he says. We didn't go after Bello before because the monsters can hit us from a distance. That's still the case. So why attack them now? Heads nod, arms fold across chests. I understand why he wanted to ask that question in private, but I have an answer. The grown-ups want us alive, I say. Their lives depend on it. They don't recognize us, at least not right away. I think that will give us time to use our speed, to reach them before they figure out who they need. You think, Spingate says. Her arms are crossed too. What if you're wrong? What if they just shoot us? Bodden thumps her fist against her chest. Then we die, she barks. We die attacking, not hiding in this room like cowards. The circle stars roar their approval. Bodden's beautiful brown skin is invisible. She is reddish gray. She is ready for war. Our best chance to survive is to never be alone, I say. Older kids will stay in groups of four. Don't get separated, even if there is fighting. Younger kids, Beckett and Smith will protect you. Over a hundred small heads turn to look at those two. Strawberry blonde Beckett smiles uncomfortably. Skinny Smith tries to look fierce, but she can't fully hide her fear. We're almost ready, but Aramovsky won't give up. They are monsters, he turns as he talks, looking to his supporters. The gods sent them. We need to talk to them. Beg them for mercy. I have seen what they can do. Unless you want to wind up as a pile of chopped up arms and legs and severed heads, listen to me. And what good does it do us to stay in groups of four? If you want to fight M, the circle stars have their clubs, so send them. I hop off the coffin and walk to the open archway. I wave Elsafani in. They enter. Boy Elsafani carries a double armful of thigh bones. Girl Elsafani passes them out to each of the older kids, starting with Beckett and Smith. I take one, then hop back up on the coffin. Bone in one hand, spear in the other. Now we all have clubs, I say. I toss the bone at Aramovsky. He catches it on reflex, stares at it. We all go, Aramovsky. We all fight. On top of Okadigbo's coffin, I am taller than anyone else in the room. Maybe I'm not as good a speaker as Aramovsky, but I've been paying attention. I've watched how people react to different things. I've recognized that certain words have power, that they dictate how people feel, how they respond. I will use those words now. Aramovsky is right about one thing, I say. There are monsters here. If they weren't sent by the gods, then we have a right to defend ourselves. If the gods did send them, then we will prove ourselves worthy. No one is coming to rescue us. No one is coming to save us. We will not cower in this room waiting for someone else to decide if we live or die. So many faces gaze up at me. 
eyes big and wide, bodies leaning slightly my way. These people are terrified. They desperately need a sense of hope. There is a final word of power I want to use, one related to rescue, but also different, stronger. If I use it right, I know everyone will follow me no matter where I lead them. We will not be hunted, I say. We will not be erased. I know this is a lot to handle, especially for the new kids, but we are going to the garden. We will save Bello if we can. We will attack, and we will either win or we will die. I raise the spear. If we can't be rescued, then we will escape. You have been listening to Alive, book one in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. Produced by Adrian Galvin and engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler, S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors by Kevin McLeod. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.